0: Welcome back to Dr. Dave on Call. Thanks for joining me again today. we got a great show for you. Uh, first, I just wanted to uh, reach out to our viewers and listeners. If you are enjoying our podcast, please go ahead and um, subscribe to us. We are found on Apple as well as Spotify and wherever you find your podcast. Please go ahead and download our episode and subscribe. Leave us a review too. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And if you are tuning into our YouTube channel, Dr. Dave on Call, Uh, Give us a like and subscribe to it as well. Today, we have a great show for you. We are going to talk to two pediatric specialists about an increasing reported condition that's found in children and adolescents that may be associated with COVID-19 infections. We are continuing our series on on the COVID-19 pandemic, and this is a really relevant topic that we should discuss today. So, the condition is called multi system inflammatory syndrome in children. It's abbreviated MISC, MISC. And recently, the CDC issued a healthcare provider alert explaining the background information on several cases that were reported uh, on MIC associated with COVID 19. And they also, the CDC provided a, a case definition for this syndrome, too. So I think it's helpful before we get to our interview with our pediatric specialist to, to start with a background of MISC, as it's going to be really important to discuss how clinicians are recognizing the association with COVID-19 so quickly, because this is a really evolving condition that we really don't know too much about yet. And there are case reports popping up everywhere from Italy to New York, um, In the United Kingdom. And specifically towards the end of April, doctors in the UK recognized that these previously healthy children were presenting to the pediatric emergency rooms and the intensive care units with really severe inflammations um, that had features of another condition called Kawasaki's disease. And so let's let's explain first what Kawasaki's disease is, because it can really provide some framework to MISc. So Kawasaki's was first described in 1967 by uh, Dr. Thomas Kawasaki, and it's really of an unknown etiology. Um, Dr. Kawasaki uh, found uh, multiple children um, that were presenting. With clinical signs that were consistent with fever. They had a characteristic rash. They had swelling of the hands and the feet. They had some irritation in the eyes where uh, the white area would be really red in both eyes. They had very swollen lymph nodes. Um, glands in the neck were very swollen. Um, they had some irritation and inflammation of the mouth, lips, and throat. So he Dr. Kawasaki, you know, noticed um, these large amounts of numbers of these kids having a very similar constellation of, of, of signs like these that we just mentioned. And, and that was the basis um, for discovering um, this, this illness. And what was consistent and really concerning in these kids is that they had serious sides of, side effects of inflammation in the blood vessels, specifically in the heart. And it can actually cause coronary artery dilations and aneurysms. So basically, children were having heart attacks at five years of age. And that was really, really surprising and concerning to Dr. Kawasaki. Now, over the years, they've developed treatment protocols for Kawasaki. And one of which is um, intravenous immunoglobulin, Therapy, which is given in in addition to aspirin, and sometimes you you can use uh, systemic steroids too as well. So that's a basis of Kawasaki's. Essentially, it is um, a disease with quite a bit of inflammation. And again, it can affect, in the more serious cases, the heart of these young kids. So going back to the UK, So doctors were recognizing that there were increasing reports of basically healthy kids who presented to the emergency room or ICU with really severe inflammation with Kawasaki disease-like features. So some of them had fevers, a rash, or they may have had some irritation of the mouth, lips, or throat. And it was concerning. Um, But more importantly, these children who were presenting in the UK in late April they were actually testing positive for COVID-19. Either they had active COVID-19 or they recently had COVID-19. They would be doing lab tests to indicate within four weeks or so that they actually had COVID-19. So these children were presenting with low blood pressure, they had multi-organ dysfunction, they had elevated inflammatory markers, but not one child actually had respiratory symptoms. So the UK had eight cases that they described um, one of which um, did die, and they all had tested positive for COVID 19. Well, fast forward here in the US, in New York City in early May, there were multiple reports of MISC in children. And as of May 12th, there were actually 102 cases uh, reported of MISC in New York. Many of those children actually tested positive for COVID 19. So that necessitated a CDC alert um to healthcare providers, giving them warning of of this condition. And they also provided a case definition for MISC. So I think that's important to actually talk about. So the, the case definition that the CDC provided is that children have to be less children and adolescents have to be less than 21 years of age and they have to present with fever, um, lab evidence of inflammation and they have to be clinically severe illness that affects two or more major organ systems, and you can't identify a plausible other diagnosis, and you have to have a recent diagnosis of COVID-19 within four weeks of presentation. So again, the case definition for MISC is fever, lab evidence of inflammation, severe illness affecting two or more or major organ systems. You can't um, attribute another disease to it. And you have to have a recent diagnosis of COVID-19 within four weeks of presenting. So I think that this background information is really helpful on describing MISC and just realizing the features of, let's say, Kawasaki's disease too and how it relates. But more importantly, talking about COVID-19 and how there could be an association uh, with this disease. And so Today we have the privilege of speaking with two pediatric specialists about this um, who've actually cared for children uh, with MISC. And um, we are we are grateful that they're here today. Dr. Melissa Tescher is a board-certified mm-hmm. pediatric rheumatologist. She's the assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Chicago Medicine. Comer Children's Hospital. And we're also joined by Dr. Julia Rosebush. She's a board certified pediatric infectious disease specialist and is assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Chicago Medicine, Comer Children's Hospital. Thank you for being here today. So we Thank are you going to have dis- Oh, absolutely. We are going to discuss um, this Kawasaki-like disease um, illness that's appearing in its relationship to the COVID-19 pandemic today. But first, we always like to give our listeners uh, a bit, bit of background on our guests today. So if you don't mind just telling us about yourself and how you became specialists in your field, uh, Dr. Tescher, why don't we start with you?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, so as Dr. Nyack said, I'm a pediatric rheumatologist. Uh, it's a quite a small field, and I became familiar with it when I cared for several teenagers with lupus when I was a resident. Um, and I realized this is a field where we really get to know our patients very well over time, care for patients through chronic disease. Um, it's also a really dynamic and rapidly changing field where treatments are rapidly improving. So it's always exciting and there's a lot to learn.
0: Great. Dr. Rosebush, how about yourself?
2: So I had no idea that infectious diseases was where I was headed until after my residency training when I took a year opportunity abroad in Botswana in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, owing to PEPFAR, I was able to be employed to scale up antiretroviral access for youth in Gaborone, Botswana. And within the first three months of my deployment there, I knew that infectious diseases was where I wanted to be. So, um, stayed in Botswana for a year and then came back and, uh, pursued uh, additional training in pediatric infectious diseases. And here I am.
0: Well, we were, we are honored to have you on our show as well as just the, and recognizing both, you know, your, the subspecialty fields that you're in, rheumatology and infectious disease and pediatrics. So we're grateful to have you. And the reason why we're here to bring you both together is to talk about um, this increasing case reports of this Kawasaki-like illness in the pediatric population, and that it, it may have this relationship with COVID-19. Um, but why don't we just take a step backwards and just talk about, first, Kawasaki's disease. Um, you know, as two physician specialists who treat this, um, what is Kawasaki's disease? Um, I'll open it up to the floor, Dr. Rose Bush or Dr. Tesher uh, please feel free.
1: Melissa, if you want to take this, I would be sure. more than happy for you to do okay. that. We can fill in, sure. It, it, it's a little bit of a difficult question. to. So I'll say one thing first, which is I do want to say that the more that we're learning about this new syndrome in coordination with our national and international colleagues, the more we realize it is not exactly the same as Kawasaki disease. It really is a difference. So I think that's important to say at the outset. Um, Kawasaki disease or maybe it would be better termed as syndrome, um, is not very well understood. I mean pediatricians have experience with it for you know quite a you know for many years. It's relatively rare. Pediatric referral centers like the University of Chicago where we work definitely see multiple cases every year, Um, but it's certainly not common. Um, It causes it's a syndrome of very high inflammation and inflammation meaning overactivation of the immune system. It's not really clear what causes this, but children with Kawasaki disease have persistent high fevers. They also have red eyes, often swollen lymph nodes. Um, they can have some rashes. They often have a red swollen tongue and swollen hands and feet. And the most worrisome thing is that they can have abnormalities or dilation of, their, of the coronary arteries. And the coronary arteries are the ones that serve the rest of the heart with blood. So that something that we take very seriously. Um, Kawasaki disease might be triggered by an infection. I'll, I'll let Dr. Rosebush talk a little bit more about that. It's long been suspected that it's triggered by a virus, but we don't have a specific virus to um, to implicate, and it might be different viruses in, in different cases.
0: Dr. Rosebush, would you like to, to add to that too as sure. well? Sure.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, I agree with everything that Dr. Tesher said with respect to Kawasaki disease or syndrome, as a lot of people would like to call it. Um, and just note that, um, you know, certainly though we have known about this condition since 1967, when the first case was reported, despite decades of research, we've not been able to identify a specific infectious trigger. Though so many people do suspect that it is an infection, as Dr. Tesher said, that does trigger this. We do Realize that there are people who may have genetic predispositions. This was first um, noted in Asia. Um, so, you know, I do find it interesting. And as Dr. Tesher said, what we're seeing right now is not Kawasaki disease. It's something that has manifestations that are similar with respect to inflammation, um, but is not Kawasaki disease in the way that it presents and the different lab abnormalities that we are seeing. And we are not seeing this um, in higher numbers in Asian populations as we typically do with Traditional Kawasaki disease. I think that that's really interesting to note. Um, so, certainly, um, racial and ethnic predispositions to Kawasaki disease or Kawasaki syndrome um, have been noted, um, but we still don't have a great um, understanding of sort of that pathophysiology or of exactly how this uh, disease occurs or why it occurs.
0: So, let's continue, Dr. Rosebush. You know, the CDC has recently given healthcare providers warnings about MISC this multi-system mm-hmm. inflammatory syndrome in children. Could you explain to us what MISC is and how it possibly could have this relationship to COVID-19? Just give us sort of the signs, the symptoms that parents and caregivers should be on the, on the lookout for.
2: Absolutely. So I'm going to take us back just a moment um, to about a month ago, and it's hard to believe that all of this has happened within the last month, but a in very late April, um, the UK reported uh, on a cohort um, that had similar manifestations to that of Kawasaki disease that uh, were also uh, thought to be linked to COVID-19 infection. Um, then we started to see reports in the United States, most specifically in New York State, of this phenomenon occurring. And then in late April, early May, um, both Dr. Tesher and I actually had the opportunity to take care of three children who we believe uh, also met criteria for this syndrome. So multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children um, is what we believe to be a post-infectious condition, meaning that it is not a direct manifestation of acute or ongoing COVID-19 infection, but instead maybe something that is immune-mediated um, or antibody-mediated, so almost as if you'd been exposed previously to the virus and then your body is having uh, a hyperactive inflammatory reaction to the virus. And I feel like that this is really important because though we cannot claim that this is directly linked with COVID-19 infection Certainly, um, the data that is out there from the European cohorts, as well as the uh, American cohorts that has been uh, published, um, certainly many of those children had evidence of antibodies made to COVID-19 infection. And as most people will say, this virus is something that we are learning about every day. It's effects we're learning about every day. We don't know fully what it is capable of, um, but I want to still emphasize that this is extremely Extremely rare. And that while parents will worry, because as parents, that's what we do we worry. um, I want people to understand that um, this is still a very rare condition. Things that one might want to look out for would be persistent high fevers, um, averaging longer than four or five days. Um, if your child is not acting like him or herself, you know, parents know their children best. If there's anything about your child, um, that is concerning to you, they're sleeping more. Uh, they're not eating as much. They're not urinating as frequently. Um, they seem to be really irritable. They seem to be confused. Any of those things that just make your child seem out of sorts, those are reasons to seek medical attention.
0: And Dr. Tesher, take us through, um, your experiences with treating, um, children that was, uh that you were concerned with uh, misc take us through your personal experience with that
1: so I've, I've now had the opportunity actually to take care of four children with with misc we've had one more case since we last spoke um, and in in many ways um, the children do present similarly to Kawasaki disease they do have many signs of inflammation they tend to be uh, very feverish but the thing that has been most notable in terms of their clinical course, in terms of how we see them as as doctors, is that their heart seems to be affected. And that's the thing that we've been most concerned about with this syndrome. Um, Some of the lab testing is showing signs of inflammation or strain of the heart muscle. And some of the patients are also presenting with low blood pressure, um, occasionally needing medications to help them maintain their blood pressure. Uh, we are seeing that with with treatment, uh, the patients that we've seen have all really done very well. Um, so while it is a, a very, you know, very concerning syndrome and definitely something we want to be highly aware of, um, I'll definitely agree with Dr. Rosebush. this is something that's, you know, very rare and that the majority of patients have done well. One other thing I'll mention is I do think that one of the the great strengths in in treating this syndrome is I think it, at least at our institution we've worked together incredibly well across disciplines. Like we very quickly convened a group that included infectious disease, rheumatology, hematology, cardiology, dermatology, critical care. You know everybody um, really working closely together to understand this disease um, as much as we can as quickly as possible and to make um, the most rational decisions we can with the medications that are available to us.
0: Absolutely. I mean the the multidisciplinary. Approach to complex cases like these is is fantastic, and I think it just speaks volumes to what you are doing at University of Chicago Medicine at Comer. Um, in terms of just this post-infectious inflammatory syndrome, and just the concept that we've been really grappling with in terms of testing, right? Um, uh-huh. Is there a role for antibody testing, especially early on, in pediatric cases who are? Um, who have had COVID nineteen and to monitor those levels? Is there is there um, you know a, a role to play in terms of antibody testing, especially early on in disease?
2: So I'm happy to field that question. So I think that everybody, both professional and layperson alike, um, have been uh, inundated with information about serologic or antibody testing, um, and there remain a lot of questions. Uh, with respect to antibody testing, there are many different platforms. Um, we don't yet have a gold standard. So using the, the term sensitivity, specificity, how good is the test um, is really fraught with problems because we, we don't have a gold standard at this point in time. Um, and of course, we're getting very different results on different platforms. And so I think with respect to how antibody testing plays a role in COVID-19, it's still very much up in the air. Are those antibodies, if they are detected, protective? And if so, for how long will they be protected? Can uh, Protective, can people get reinfected? These are all questions that I think remain to be answered. But I do think that with mis this is one of the conditions that I do think um, they're very helpful uh, for. Um, we will not say that a person Um, who doesn't have detectable antibody cannot be, um, potentially, um, COVID-19, have a potential history of COVID-19 infection, again, because of the difficulties with the um, performance of these different antibody tests. But I think certainly if we're trying to definitively establish a link between um, COVID-19 and this particular disease process, then I think that we need to be employing antibody tests to determine whether or not we really can say that there's a definitive link there.
1: So I'll just add that for for people in the audience who might not be aware, the first test that's done is the swab that goes in the nose, which is called the, the PCR. And that tests whether you have active virus in your body at that time. And the antibody test, antibodies are present for much longer. So you might detect antibodies at a time when that test to see if virus is present in your body is no longer positive. But that still tells us as physicians that this is a patient who has recently... Well, we know it's recently because the disease hasn't been around very long. This is a patient who has been exposed to, to COVID-19. But I think you were also asking whether we're using antibody testing to try to assess whether patients are at risk of MISC. c Was that what you were asking?
0: Just the this, role they, in terms of We're definitely
1: very far from, from that. I yeah, don't think
0: we've absolutely.
1: established anything about
0: that. Absolutely. And I think that as also, too, in terms of the cohort of patients, too, that the numbers are so small. We're at case reports mm-hmm. now. And if the incidence right. actually you know, it increases over time too, as well, the role of that as well. You know, I know that this is very difficult to even postulate too, as well as state and local governments and public health departments are essentially weighing summer camps and school um, during the next few months here. I think as you've alluded to it, that the rarity of misc um, in terms of just the general population is so, is so small and I guess parents would be naturally concerned about, um, you know, its relationship to COVID-19. And and if the cases start to actually increase over the summer, um, what should we be thinking about in terms of, um, you know, the general gestalt of, 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 of the kids being in these camps um, as parents? Will there be a concern to actually send them to camps, um, given the fact that, Um, It's very difficult to implement physical distancing among children, especially younger pediatric patients, too, as well.
1: I think this is such a hard question to to answer. Um, I I wish I could be a little bit more specific. But given that this outcome is so rare, I mean, I would still emphasize that even with what we know about this particular illness, which is new and, and can be alarming... It is still true that the vast majority of children um, who are infected with COVID-19 or who are exposed to COVID-19 really do very well, either are asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms, not requiring any care in the hospital. And I think with all of these questions, we have to balance the risk versus benefit. Like what is the benefit to society of having children in school versus what is the risk not only to them but also to staff? You know, I think these are just very complicated questions, and uh, I, I know that people are still are still working on the on the answers to this.
2: I would absolutely echo what Dr. Tescher says. I feel like if uh, I had the answer to this question, then maybe I could someday have Dr. Fauci's job, which I don't want. <laughs> but I also, <laughs> but 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 I also I also utilize his guidance and his interpretation of science to sort of help guide me and guide the way that I think about these things. And I, I think it's absolutely true what Dr. Tesher said. It's, it's a risk versus benefit. Um, as you know, children are very difficult to keep socially distanced from one another. It's just their nature that they want to be close. It's really hard to ensure that people are masked that people are physically distanced, that people are washing their hands. I mean, at camps, at school, you're getting your hands dirty, you're, you're doing things um, that are going to potentially transmit. I mean, we do know that children, however, are, Um, less likely to transmit virus. They're not as effective um, as adults are in terms of transmitting virus and so um, you know I'm thankful that I'm not the one that needs to make this decision for our city, for our country, for our nation Um, but I I do think that we're going to have to take a really long and hard look at this because um, you know um, families are not going to be able to keep their children home forever. Children are going to need to go to school. There are so many benefits um, to being in, um, you know, a common area with other children and learning in that, in that way. So in um, COVID, we know right now is, is, is not going to weigh and uh, going to go away until we have an effective vaccine, which is far off from this point. Um, it, it's something that we're going to have to learn to mitigate versus uh, avoid altogether, because I do believe it's going to be inevitable.
0: Excellent. Uh, Dr. Tesher, Dr. Rose Bush, firstly, we Thank you for caring for our children too during this difficult time. We appreciate your service and and truly grateful for, for all of your hard work dealing with conditions like these and, and taking care of our children. So thank you very much for being on Dr. Dave on call. Um, we really appreciate that. Thank you thank so
1: you much for having
0: us. A great discussion today with Dr. Tesher and Dr. Rosebush, two pediatric specialists. From the University of Chicago Medicine Comer Children's Hospital, who have treated MISC. Um, a, a really tremendous insight into this rare condition. As we're still understanding um, MISC in children and trying to determine this association between COVID 19 and MISC, what we do know is that the condition is rare. Uh, while children are really becoming sick with this syndrome, they're really doing quite well with early diagnosis and early treatment they're responding well to it and they and they're doing quite well and i think recognizing the signs and symptoms as parents teachers caregivers will be very important as we go forward in the covid-19 pandemic so you know if children do develop symptoms of misc that we can really diagnose them early and uh, and start treatment early too that'll be really key again we appreciate doctors tesher and Rosebush for coming on our show today um we appreciate our listeners and viewers too Uh, again um if you are enjoying our podcast we encourage you to download them at uh uh you know on apple and spotify or wherever you find your podcasts and if you are watching us on youtube subscribe to our channel and give us a like um Again, you can tweet us as well uh, with any of your questions or concerns at Dr. Dave on call, or you can email us too. We appreciate you tuning in today. Encourage uh, everybody to stay safe and healthy during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll see you next time. Take care.